Greetings from the Notre Dame Alumni Association, and welcome to another episode of Everyday Holiness, a Faith Indie podcast. This is again your host, Dan Allen, Associate Director of Spirituality and Service, and we're glad to have you along for another conversation where we explore the life, faith, and important decision points of a member of the Notre Dame family. Today's guest is Steve Bullman, who graduated in 1987 with his MBA from the university, and he's also currently a Notre Dame parent. Finally, he's the founder and president of a ministry called Paradisus Day, which we'll get into in, in good time. But Steve, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. Really glad to have you. So we'll start at the beginning. Where did you grow up? What were some important childhood memories that you had that really shaped you as a person? Sure. So I grew up in Oklahoma. And, uh, you know, and growing up in the 70s, really, in Oklahoma, Catholicism was a really minor part of the culture there. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the time, Catholics were 2% of the population. And indeed, we were considered mission territory for the Catholic Extension Society. Yeah. And, uh, and I always joke that I thought everybody got their calendars from the Catholic Extension <laughs> Society and didn't know any better. Right. And, uh, but my mom was from a small German farming community just northwest of Oklahoma City called Okarchi, Oklahoma. And that small farming community dates really to the founding of Oklahoma, to the Oklahoma land run. Mm-hmm. And a bunch of Germans came over for land. And literally, the town was divided in half. There was a Catholic church on one side and a Lutheran church on the other side. Hmm. And my family was part of the Catholic church. And I didn't even know there was a Lutheran church in existence until much later, because <laughs> the Catholic church had the big steeple, the Lutheran church didn't. Uh-huh. And again, the Socarchi, Oklahoma, which had 200 people back then. Right. And um, nonetheless, it was a very devout German Catholic community, uh, which I should just take the opportunity to mention, Blessed Stanley Rother. The first American martyr mm-hmm. is from Okarchi, Oklahoma. Okay. And uh, he was a couple years older than my mom. My mom certainly knew him and had his younger brother in her class with her in Holy Trinity uh, Elementary School that was attached to Holy Trinity Catholic Church. And so really, my faith, my Catholic faith comes to me from my mom and from that small German farming community uh, just northwest of Oklahoma City and a beautiful, lovely church. Holy Trinity, uh, where I was baptized uh, on the Feast of Our Lady of Lourdes. So, uh, and then I I would say that growing up, it was, first of all, it was something of the 70s. Mm -hmm. And so I wouldn't say it was rigorous by any stretch of imagination. But we always knew, even when we were on vacation, uh, vacation, that we were going to make it to church on Sunday. Mm -hmm. And then I went to public schools my whole Life when I was younger, primarily because my mother at that time thought that the Catholic schools in Oklahoma didn't really measure up to the public schools. Mm-hmm. So I went to public schools my uh, whole life growing up, and really to a certain extent, other than going to mass with my family, my faith was was not that important in my life to be honest, and somewhat hidden because all of my friends were Protestant. Right. I never felt the desire to be Protestant. I never rebelled against Catholicism or anything else, but it's kind of what I did for an hour on Sunday. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that background. As you grew older into adolescence, did you ever have any moments where you start to, you know, you began to think about taking your faith 
more seriously or, or seeing its importance more in your life or was that later in life? You know, probably I would say the, the first big step came when I was at the University of Oklahoma for my undergraduate. Mm-hmm. And the way I like to characterize it, there are two things happened at the same time um, that were very important to me. One of which is part of the way I earned money to uh, go through University of Oklahoma is I framed houses. Right. So building houses, I framed houses. And I was very fortunate that I got put onto uh, a crew that was devout evangelical Protestants. Mm-hmm. My best friend uh, worked on the crew and he got me onto the crew. And instead of the stereotypic crew of construction workers, this was a devout evangelical Protestant environment. Okay. And about the same time, I started dating a devout Baptist girl who we were very serious and at one point were considering, you know, having the first discussions about whether or not we'd get married or not. And the way I like to characterize it is that I was surrounded by devout Protestants, and although I wouldn't call myself devout, I was a stubborn, unyielding Catholic. (laughs) (laughs) And so... And so what it did is it actually forced me for the first time to start looking into my faith. Sure. And so I started looking into my faith. I started reading the Bible because I remember the girl told me, and it really hit me one day. She said, why don't you Catholics take your Bibles to you know, Mass on Sunday? Mm-hmm. I said, well, we don't need to. You know, they read up there at the front. I didn't even know it called the lectionary. They read up front. And she goes, well, isn't going to church without your Bible kind of like going to school without your books? Hmm. And I thought, man, that's pretty good. And so I just sat down on my own. Of course, we had lots of Bibles in our house, and I received one for confirmation and all that good stuff, but I never bothered to read them. Mm-hmm. And I started opening the Bible and reading it. And when I did, I'm just like, this is all Catholic. Right. I mean, it just jumped off the pages to me. I was just like, well, you know, here's the Eucharist. Here's all these other things. Here's Peter. You know, all this stuff. And so to me, immediately when I read the Bible, I started saying, wow. This seems Catholic to me. And I started having a discussion. So me and the girl decided we made this deal. As we were getting closer, we knew that religion was going to be an issue for us if we did decide to get married. And so she came to Mass with me on Sunday, and I went to Bible school with her. Actually, first we went to her Bible school. Then we left after Bible school and came to Mass on Sunday. Okay. And during that period, I was reading the Bible, and I started having discussions with her and with her Sunday school teacher, who was one of the deacons at their church. Mm -hmm. And then finally, one time, we got together, me and this Sunday school teacher and her, and we're having this discussion about it. And I remember, and and this was, we had this discussion specifically on once saved, always saved. Mm -hmm. One of the main doctrines there for, you know, Baptist evangelical. Mm-hmm. As we did it, I just kept bringing up these scriptural passages that, we, you know, it doesn't look like that here and here and here. And finally, at one point, I brought up a passage. He said, my land. And then he went and he got one of his theology books, the commentaries on scripture, this big series he had, and he read it. And then when he read what this guy really thought, he's like, man, I never thought he would have said that. Hmm. He said, you got a point. I guess you Catholics do know a thing or two about the Bible. <laughs> and then after that, the girl started going to RCIA class. Before she finished the class, she and I broke up and decided we weren't getting married. Okay. But she became Catholic anyway. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and so I would say that was my first big step 
And then being around, again, the Protestant crew and my best friend who God put him in my life because I could have easily got off track into some trouble and I never was, quote, bad, but I certainly did lots of things in life in retrospect I wish I hadn't done. Mm -hmm. Uh, But God put these good people around me. And so University of Oklahoma, I would say I had kind of my first steps, but also false starts. Mm -hmm. That's so encouraging to hear in the sense of, you know, our common Christian dialogue and and how we can help each other grow in that conversation. And it certainly sounds like it. that's what happened for you. In terms of college, what did you major in? And, you know, you were, you were framing houses, but I assume your career took a different direction. Sure. So uh, at University of Oklahoma, I was a chemical engineer. And so once I graduated, I moved to uh, the Dallas-Fort Worth area. I lived in Arlington, but worked at General Dynamics in Fort Worth. And uh, I did some research on the F-16 mm-hmm. uh, fighter plane that they built there. And while I was there that year, I had a lot of fun, not probably all of it the right type of fun, but <laughs> okay. it was I lived typically the indulgent yuppie lifestyle. Uh-huh. Out of my own, single, making reasonable money, not great money, but and it was just a year of, quote, having fun. Mm-hmm. Yet there was this emptiness because I had these starts at Oklahoma, right? Even if they didn't fulfill or come to fruition, nonetheless, there were all these starts at Oklahoma. So that, uh, matter of fact, I found myself at Christmas time going down and buying a rosary. Because while I was at University of Oklahoma, once or twice for Lent, I said, okay, well, I'm going to do this Lent to say the rosary. And I literally noticed that every time I said the rosary, my spiritual life went so much better. Mm-hmm. Well, so now I've got this kind of empty life that I'm living at the General Dynamics, Fort Worth, Arlington area. And so I go down, and I'm going to get a rosary. So I go down, and I get a rosary, and I kind of pray it, start it for Advent, but then drop away again and continue to have a lot of fun there. But I'm having this real emptiness. And I'm like, I need to get my life back with God. Mm -hmm. And literally, the thought in my head was, okay, I didn't like the engineering at all. And my decision about applying for Notre Dame was, A, my first desire was to get closer to God. And my second desire was to get out of engineering. Okay. And that's about as much thought that went into it, to be honest with you. (laughs) And so I went to go visit University of Notre Dame, which would have been the fall of 1985. And I remember going up there, and, and two funny things here. Uh, one thing, it was the first time I've ever ridden on, a, ever rode on a big plane in my life. Mm-hmm. Like I kept growing up in the 70s in Oklahoma City in a modest family and that kind of thing. Sure. So I flew up to Chicago, and I had all sorts of trouble figuring out the time zone <laughs> thing. Because that's also when South Men, you know, didn't, didn't change times, times yeah. <laughs> Easter Standard all the time. And I was forever confused the whole weekend about when I was supposed to be somewhere or not. But when I got there to, to Notre Dame, I, of course, went to a football. I, I interviewed, I had an interview with the NBA, you know, uh, head of admissions, and Joyce Manthe was her name at the time. And then I, she mentioned to me, was well, there, you know, they play LSU tomorrow. And since it's fall break, you should be able to get tickets pretty easily. Okay. Cool. So I went to, uh, sure enough, stand there, and I got tickets dirt cheap because it poured like crazy all (laughs) day long. 
I was soaking wet, and Notre Dame got killed by LSU. Oh, no. it, was, it was it was the Jerry Faust years, and it was, and I and I sat there in the rain and just got drenched. But and so so much so that I left the game reasonably early, which probably a lot of people did. And of course, that was the old small stadium, right? That sure. was the old fifty-eight thousand stadium. And then all I know is I wanted to make sure that I got to mass on time, mm-hmm. because when I went to that basilica which that's not the renovated basilica you see today, right? Right. So this is previous to that, but it was still the most beautiful church I've ever seen in my life. And I'm just like, I'm just going to go to Mass here. Uh, That's all I know is I'm going to go to Mass here. And so I literally uh, left the game early so I could go stand under the hair dryers there in the old little small huddle, (laughs) which was before the expansion of the huddle, right? right? Which happened my second year there. Uh, so it was before the expansion of the hell. So I literally went and just kept pushing dry on the hair dryer <laughs> and holding different parts of my body underneath it so that I could be somewhat dry when I went to the Basilica. And I went to the Basilica, and I'll never forget it. As I was sitting in that Basilica, I literally thought it must have been an angel singing. The young lady, of course, who was a student, who was the cantor, was just the most angelic voice I think I've ever heard. Mm-hmm. And I happened to be sitting right behind her parents. And to see them beaming about, this is our daughter, you know, leading song at Notre Dame Basilica. To see them beaming and me to sit behind them, I literally, at that moment, I said, if I get into this university, I'm not going anywhere else. I don't care where I go. Yeah. And so I went home and I applied and they were doing rolling admissions back then. And so I filled that out, my, my application, just to have long it took me to fill it out once I got home. And I remember then turning my application in, and there was a friend of mine at General Dynamics who he had also decided to go back and get an MBA. And at the time, he was looking at the IVs and places like that, mm-hmm. and he was trying to get me to apply there. And I said, I want to go to Notre Dame. And he says, you're telling me that if you got into Harvard and Notre Dame, you'd go to Notre Dame. I said, absolutely. <laughs> I have no hesitation at yep. all. And uh, and so I remember I sent my application in, and then I went home for Christmas to my family back in Oklahoma. And when I got back from Christmas with my family, in the mailbox was my acceptance to Notre Dame. Yeah. And I immediately sent in my acceptance that I was coming. Mm-hmm. And then I just had, you know, eight months of fun in, in Dallas-Fort Worth before I left for Notre Dame. But uh, and through that, my friend, get well, you get, if you got in Notre Dame that easy, you got to try and get into Harvard. I don't want to go to Harvard. I want to go to Notre Dame. And uh, and in fact, he ended up coming to Notre Dame and being my roommate there. Uh, okay. <laughs> and so uh, so anyway, that fall, then uh, so it would have been the fall of '85. We would have started uh, the MBA program there at Notre Dame. Larry Ballinger was the uh, director of it at the time. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Did you find yourself really growing in your faith while even a gra- as a graduate student at Notre Dame? I did. And I would say two things about that. First of all, obviously, as a Notre Dame student, we didn't have to take the undergrad philosophy and theology and courses like that. Sure. What we had back then was one ethics class uh, that was taught by Father uh, Ollie Williams mm-hmm. uh, at the time. So we had one ethics class, but it was just and we lived off campus. So we also didn't have the environment where, you know, the undergrads, of course, their spiritual life, just like my daughter, is all based around the dorm, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And mass in the dorm and all of those things they do. And so I didn't have those experiences at Notre Dame. 
but just the campus itself. So like what I had is when I was at Notre Dame, uh, in those days, the NBAs only went Monday through Thursday. Okay. And we always had every Friday off that was intended to primarily be so that we could use it for interviewing for jobs and those kind of things. And so what I did for myself on every Friday, I remember I had this little routine. I would, when I got up, I would do my part of cleaning of the apartment. And then I would head to campus and I had a little routine where I would walk through the Golden Dome. Then I'd go sit in the Basilica. Then I'd go down to the grotto. Right. And I had that, and I always walked down the main quad, the God quad. I always walked down there, just soaked in the beauty of the campus and especially the dome and the spire. And then, like I said, I just went through the dome pretty quickly. Then I, I would sit for a while in the basilica, just sitting there praying and, and just quiet, more or less. And then I'd go down to the grotto. And I'd always light a candle, a couple of candles. And then after that, uh, I would go meet all my buddies over at the huddle and have lunch and then start in with the rest of the day and go to studying and then whatever was going to happen that night, get ready for the game the next day or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so for me... God was working in a more silent, hidden way because I didn't have what the university would do as some of the more obvious things they do for undergraduates. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't even living on campus, but I spent as much time there as I could. Mm -hmm. I loved just being on the campus and especially sitting in the Basilica. Uh, I love the grotto, but I've actually come to love it more since I've left. My number one thing was just sitting in that Basilica. And uh, in that silence, God was working. I didn't know it, but he was planting seeds that would bear fruit later. Yeah, I think a lot of people have had those kinds of experiences. It's such a, I mean, the reason that it is a minor basilica is because it's such a place of pilgrimage and a spiritual home to so many. So that's great to hear that even even not being able to come here as an, as an undergraduate, you still had that, that connection, that experience. After you finished your MBA, what was the direction that your career took at that point? Sure. Let me just mention three things, first of all, that I would say is the biggest things I took out of Notre Dame. Okay. And because that's going to be very critical to my career path. Yes. And it's interesting. So the first thing was they gave me a love of learning. Before I went to Notre Dame, probably the only thing I read, other than what I was forced to read, was the sports page. Mm Mm-hmm. And Sports Illustrated and that kind of thing, right? I don't think I ever picked up a book that wasn't about a sports star to read. But Notre Dame truly gave me a true love to learn so that ever since I left Notre Dame, I've never stopped learning. And just constantly want to learn whatever that may be. The second thing is they gave me a true pride in my Catholic faith. Mm -hmm. That again, growing up in Oklahoma, 2%, none of my friends being Catholic, none of my close friends... That just wasn't what I had. And now all of a sudden being at Notre Dame where you see priests walking around all the time, you see CEOs of major companies there, and you see Notre Dame function on the level that they function in all ways, whether that's athletically, academically. It was just like, wow, I was proud to be a Catholic. Mm -hmm. And then the last thing they gave me was a desire to serve. And I would say that I always joke that me and Father Hesper graduated together. <laughs> so that uh, we both left in 87. Right. And for Father Ted, one of his big things was service. Yes. And, you know, when he ended the last commencement, it was go out and do good. Mm-hmm. And so when I left, 
I would say I took those three things with me, a pride in the Catholic faith, a desire to learn, and a desire to serve. Now, at the time, my mindset was, I'm going to go make a billion dollars, and I'll be generous and give a lot of money okay. to the church. <laughs> sure. That was how my mindset was of how I'm going to serve, right? Is I'm going to go make a billion dollars, and then I'm going to give... I'll be really generous. And I don't know how generous I thought that was going to be, but I would have some spare money for the church if I made a billion dollars. Right. Yeah, I would imagine so. <laughs> and so, uh, so I set out to be successful. I got into the oil industry, and so I moved to Houston, Texas. And you know, growing up in Oklahoma, probably the oil industry was the number one wealth generator. Sure. So, and I wanted to get back down to this part of the country. And then, of course, Houston being the oil capital of the world, okay, I got offered for a job in Houston in what was still pretty tough days in the oil industry. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I moved to, moved to Houston and joined the management development program uh, at Conoco in Houston. And I had several jobs there, but then eventually I was trading energy derivatives. And so I spent the last portion of my career trading energy derivatives. And that's probably when I felt like I was most using, um, you know, the education I'd learned because I concentrated in finance and options and all those kind of good things. And so I actually did that. And it was probably the one of the most enjoyable jobs I've had. But nonetheless, I had this still calling of God that I felt. And then I truly perceived that God wanted me to, instead of go make a billion dollars and give him a little, so to speak, he wanted all of me. Right. And so he wanted me to truly give him myself. And at the time, I wasn't married. And so I felt this explicit call that he wanted me to come do something. And so I said, okay, God, I'll do that. And I somewhat characterized myself as an Augustine in the sense that it was always, you know, yes, but not today, right. you know, later. <laughs> and, and finally, this time was just yes. Mm-hmm. But I didn't know what it was other than I was supposed to start preparing myself. And so within that context, this gets back into this love of learning. I just started pouring into our faith. And the year after God got a hold of me, I read one book a week. Hmm. And I'm talking about not just little simple books. I mean, the collected works of John of the Cross, I considered it one book. Yeah. And I read one of those a week. And the really hard ones would take me two weeks, but I mean, I had to double up on some easier ones. Sure. <laughs> and that was while I was still working full time, right? Yeah. And so I really poured myself into learning the faith. And not only from an academic perspective, but also from the heart. I really started practicing the faith and the devotions in the faith. And God put some wonderful people in my pathway to help me with all of that. And then finally... Years later, all of a sudden it became explicit. What I want you to do is something for marriage and family life. Mm -hmm. That things are very difficult now for just people who are wanting to find love, get married, and raise a family. That that's tough. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, okay, God, I'm not married. Because part of this time when I was going through my discernment before this, since I wasn't married yet, I had a, a serious discernment about the priesthood. Right, right. Okay, well, God, if you want me and you want all of me, I guess you want me to be a priest. Okay. And and the answer was, well, no, but it wasn't a definitive no. It's just, okay, well, not now. And so there was a, a couple of years where I was ready to apply to the seminary. Mm -hmm. But each time it was like, no. And I felt very confident in my discernment that, okay, not now. But I thought, okay, well, it just means he wants me to do some more study and prep and all that good stuff. 
And then finally, it's like, no, I want you to do something for marriage and family life. And my response is, well, uh, it's very great, but I'm not married. And the next thing you know, he introduced me to Shelly. Mm-hmm. I literally met her at Daily Mass at St. Cecilia's. And at the same time, he told me that, okay, it's time that I'd like you to do something in marriage and family life. He introduced me to Shelly. I, and so those two came together, and I knew that Shelley would be the person for me that uh, when it was obvious that we were going to get married and that was the path we were going, I said, okay, God, if she's really the one you want for me, she'll have to say yes to this. And so we were out at lunch one day, and I said, you know, uh, Shelley, I think we can both kind of see where this is heading. But here's what I've got to tell you. I mean, you look at me today, and I'm this energy derivative trader, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. But I want you to know, God has told me he wants me to do something, and I've already said yes. Hmm. And therefore, I'm working myself out of this job, and within a few years, I hope to quit this mm-hmm. and do full-time ministry for marriage and family life in the, in the Catholic Church in some way. And I still remember her response to that, which is then when I knew that, okay, yeah, God, thank you for giving me this woman in my life. He's, her response was, well, if God has called you to this, then he's called me to this. Hmm. And I think it's beautiful. Yeah. And I said, cool, I'm going to buy the ring. Uh, <laughs> and sure enough, <laughs> bought the ring, we got engaged, and we got married. And two years later, after we were married, sure enough, uh, I left uh, trading in derivatives and uh, began working in marriage and family. I found a paradise to stay and began working in marriage and family life. Wow, what a, what a tremendous response by her and jump in with both feet. It's wonderful to have that, you know, reinforcement of sometimes we want answers from God, but they come through other people. So thanks for sharing that. Yeah. If we could backtrack for just a moment, I don't know what the lifestyle of an energy derivatives trader is, but just, you know, thinking about finance and kind of the fast-paced life and things like that. Was that a challenge for you as as a man of deep faith and living in that world? Or could you give us some insight into what that was like? Okay, so sure. So in our That Man Is You program, I actually speak about it in uh, especially the first session. Mm-hmm. And we talk about what it was like because trading engine derivatives is truly the stereotype of what you see a lot. And that is you have the opportunity to make or lose a boatload of money really quickly. Mm-hmm. And the risk is very great, the reward's very great if you're successful, and so it attracts people who like to take risk. And they take risks not only in their professional lives, but also in their personal lives. Mm -hmm. And so the group of people that I work with, none of them, they would have all been considered leaders. All these guys are making good money, living in the right part of town, sending their kids to the right schools, that kind of thing, right? Mm Mm-hmm. But if you looked at the moral life they lived, we had an interesting deal, which you'll have to go to that man as you to get it in all of its glory, but where we did what was called the Ten Commandments test, mm-hmm. in which we did a public examination conscience for one <laughs> trader who had said he was a good guy. Okay. And then, then somebody, there was this fight. He's sitting there saying, I'm a good guy. And this other trader said, no, you're not. Yeah, I am. No, you're not. So finally, somebody suggests, well, why don't we'll need an objective standard to solve this? And why don't we use the Ten Commandments? And everybody was like, yeah, good idea, good idea. And then every single person, they went around the table. You know them, I don't know them. You know them, I don't know them. Nobody knew the Ten Commandments. And then finally, they came to me. And I was the one known practicing Catholic Christian 
and the group. Mm -hmm. Steve, you know the Ten Commandments? Yeah, I know them. Know them in order. I even know them in order. <laughs> and it's like, okay, well, Joe here, fictitious name, thinks that he's a good guy, and we want to see how he's doing the Ten Commandments. And as we go through the Ten Commandments, he misses almost all of them. Mm -hmm. And it goes from being very fun to start to not being so fun. Yeah. Because Joe had agreed that the Ten Commandments were an objective standard for being a, quote, good guy. And at the end of the day, Joe got two commandments. <laughs> we said that he honored his father and mother. And by this point in his life, he probably was pretty good at that. But I guarantee you he had sowed some wild oats in his days. Mm -hmm. And then we said he'd never killed anybody. Mm -hmm. And we didn't include under the fifth commandment, thou shalt not murder, some of the things the Catholic Church would include under that. Sure. And nonetheless, those were the only two he got. And in fact, that whole group of men, we spotted everybody that same two. And the average for the group was two and a half. Half of the guys had committed adultery, half hadn't. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, it is the stereotype of what you see. And even though I lived in it and I knew it, that hit me really hard that day. And fortunately for me, by the time I started trading in derivatives, God had already gotten a hold of me. And I was going to daily mass. I was saying the rosary every day. I didn't go out with them to do a whole lot of things. And they knew that. Mm -hmm. And then it, so it was really nice to see how they would respond to somebody because they knew it was authentic for me in the sense that they knew that I truly tried to live it. And they also knew that I could always back it up. And so it was really beautiful in the sense that also these guys who, of course, none of them were practicing their faith at all, right? Mm -hmm. And they were all guys. So I keep saying the guys. In, in my case, the, my counterparties, both in New York, my main counterparties, as well as the guys I was with in Houston, as well as the guys in London, mm -hmm. were all guys. Yeah. There were a few women who would be there, and they would typically come and go. And so none of them were practicing their faith. But individually, each of them would take me aside to ask me about faith. Okay. None of them would do it publicly, but privately, they would even make excuses so that they could get time just with me, like if we're out on a trip. And so it's interesting, this whole dynamic that was going on. But it's, you know, I always say I knew how much it impacted me when 9-11 happened. Yeah. And when 9-11 happened, uh, I walked into the office and the first tower was already on fire. Okay. And I picked up the phone, and I was on the phone with the largest marketer at uh, JN, which is the commodity trading of Goldman Sachs uh, there in New York. And he and I are talking on the phone. I'm like, hey, what's going on? Ah, nobody knows, really. Some people think maybe a small plane somehow got lost and flew into it. But at this point, nobody really knows. Sure. And as he and I are on the phone, we just see this other fireball explode on the television. Hmm. And the first words out of my mouth were, this is a terrorist attack, buy me oil. Hmm. And he said, what? I said, this is a terrorist attack, buy me oil. And he's like, Steve. And then he mentioned his wife's name is across the street. And this was also a friend of mine, right? I mean, we were counterparties, but he was a friend and we'd gone out, you know, to plays and World Series and all those things in New York. Sure. And done it as couples. And he's sitting there saying, well, you don't understand. Okay, you're saying this is terrible. My wife is, you know, 100 feet from that. Right. And I'm like, buy me oil. Huh. And he's like, the market's closed. I said, London's open. And he yells in the phone, you call London yourself. Bleep, bleep, bleep. Yeah. Slam. 
And I thought to myself, hmm, and I'm already starting to see the price of oil tick up, right? Right. And because at that point in time, we didn't have the, the after hours trading was limited on the, you know, uh, electronically. Uh-huh. It was very limited. So I knew I couldn't do the volume that I wanted to do just electronically because I was going to buy a million barrels. Mm-hmm. I wanted to buy a million barrels instantaneously. And I decided, okay, I'm going to take a little walk around the outside of our little complex there. And I took a walk that probably lasted, you know, I don't know, seven, eight, nine, ten minutes, something like that. By the time I got back, those million barrels would have been maybe $6 million. Mm-hmm. The price of oil had jumped $6. But while I was taking that walk, I said, Steve, you know, what are you really thinking that you clearly identify that our country's under attack and your first thing is how you're going to make money? Mm-hmm. And during that walk, I said, you know what? Conoco is going to make enough money from oil shooting up today. Mm-hmm. Oil companies make money when the price of oil goes up. Right. Now, they don't need my other little chip of six, you know, million dollars today. And uh, so I decided that while I was on my walk, I'm not going to trade anything at all today. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to sit on the side, and then tomorrow I'll decide if I start doing something or not. Okay. So even when you're living an incredibly, trying to live an incredible, you know, intense spiritual life, so going to mass every day. So at noon, instead of going with them to go to lunch and they would have drinks at lunch, instead of that, I would go to mass. Mm-hmm. Say my rosary every day, even with trying to live an intensely, you know, a devout spiritual life. Yes, it still seeps in. You're right? right. So I always remember that. And because it's so important who you surround yourself with, because if I'm in that environment and I'm doing everything I can possibly to not be impacted and you still get impacted with that level, it just kind of shows you the challenges we have. Yeah, I mean, as, as good of an influence as you were being to those other men, you were touched by it. And I was thinking of, you know, the scripture passage of what good is it for us to gain the whole world, but to lose our souls in the process, you know, and, and, and not, not to suggest that that was what was happening there, but that you were being affected by that. When did the move out of energy derivatives and into this kind of full-time ministry, when did that take place in this timeline? And did you find yourself, you know, really positively affected in ways that maybe you couldn't have anticipated? So uh, the move out happened uh, like this, and that is Conoco and Phillips decided to merge. Mm-hmm. The day they announced their merger, I went home to Shelley and I said, honey, Conoco and Phillips are merging. They will be offering packages. This has accelerated the timeline by a couple of years. Okay. If you're okay with it, I'm going to go to them and ask a package. Yeah. And she said, I'm okay with it. So when they got to me, I was going to be one of the four major traders for them of derivatives. And I said, actually, I'd like to leave. Uh, and so they said, great. And so at that point in time, I said goodbye, and I started uh, in ministry full time. And I told them, that's what I'm doing. I'm not going to trade for somebody else. I'm leaving. And because of the life I'd lived, they actually could see that. Sure. They see, yeah, I could see this guy deciding to go do ministry in the church. Okay, well, that's helpful. In terms of your budding and growing vocation to marriage, you, you mentioned that you had thought about being a priest, but never got confirmation of that. And then, you know, marriage came to you a little bit later. 
What were some of the lessons of marriage that really were driven home to you through your personal experience of it? No, here, here's what I'd say in my particular case that happened. I was blessed, of course, that uh, right when my faith was really coming alive, that was the John Paul II generation, right? Sure. And John Paul II gave us more teaching on marriage and family life than we received in the entire probably 2,000-year history of the church. Mm-hmm. And he totally revolutionized our thoughts. And the interesting thing about you know, my journey is that God first gave me a theological vision of, of the beauty of marriage. And that is, you know, I grew up in a home where, although, again, my mother handled on the Catholic faith strongly to us, she and my dad had a really difficult marriage. Okay. And when uh, my little brother, so I was the third of four boys, and uh, when my little brother moved out of the house and my parents got divorced. Mm. So they were one of those couples that stayed together for the kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then when all the kids were out of the house, a couple of years later, they divorced. Yeah. And so I didn't necessarily grow up with marriage as the front of my radar screen. Uh, I just assumed I would. I mean, at that point in time, right, growing up in the 70s, that's just what everybody did. So I never assumed I wouldn't. And obviously, I, a couple times, I thought I was very close before I met Shelly, including the girl I mentioned at University of Oklahoma. Right. But I wouldn't say that there was this other thing other than that's just what people did, right? And then when I ran on to John Paul II, and I ran on to his theology of the body, but then also all of his thought mm-hmm. that he put into other documents, right? From the Aris Consortium, Dignitatum, all these other documents. It was just like the light bulbs turned on. Yeah of God's presence within marriage and family life, that he's truly present, that this is a sacrament, and our homes are truly holy, and he dwells there. So Ecclesia Domestica, Mm -hmm. that is the domestic church, not that that's just some kind of cute little term, but that, no, God walks in our homes. So I actually had this, like, theological conversion first. Okay. And I saw this beauty and then that's when I started to truly desire marriage as desiring it as opposed to just, okay, this is what you do. You grow up and you get a job and you get married and you have kids. Uh, so I started desiring it. And then that's when he met, uh, he introduced me to Shelly. And then that's when now what I've lived in my relationship with Shelly is something of that vision. Obviously, none of us live it perfectly. and But nonetheless, marriage for me is not this struggle to somehow not kill my wife today. Okay. You know, and it's not my struggle to somehow just please her so that she doesn't scream at me today. Sure. Marriage is my joy. I don't, you know, in the world we have struggles and I can't not be that way. But my joy is when I come home. And when I come home, my wife and then my daughters, my joy is at home. Hmm. Now I love my job and I love what I'm doing. I love serving God. So I'm blessed in that way. But all I can say is well, the reason the ministry's name Paradises Day, which is the paradise of God, mm-hmm. is we say God, his paradise is the family. The place he dwells with a unique pleasure is within the home. And we're called to find union with him in that home. And when we do, that gives us love, peace, and joy, the first three fruits of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. And so our homes are actually called to be the place that we experience that love, peace, and joy. And when we do that, then our lives are fulfilled. And, you know, one of the things I saw back during my days of trading in Jerusalem, you know, you can be making all the money you want. You can have 
great cars and homes and on and on and on. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, if you don't have a good family life, you're miserable. Yeah. That if what you're going to do is come home and it's just going to be tension all night long, I don't care what that car is like in the garage. Mm -hmm. You're just going to be miserable. Right. It's very inspiring. Could you give us a sense of the history of Paradisus Day and how it's developed over the years since you've made that decision to change career trajectory? Sure. So here's the thing I would say, and this gets back into the seeds that got planted at Notre Dame. So first of all, I had no clue of what to do when I started. I mean, right? It's just like, okay. And I wondered about, okay, what am I supposed to do? And I didn't feel like called to say, okay, go to, you know, my parish or the diocese and say, I'm going to be a minister of marriage and family life because I had no theology degree, right? Okay. And I'd done a lot of reading by then. Sure. But I, but it wasn't like I had the credentials to, quote, be somebody in the hierarchical church structure. And so what I did is I put together a program for marriage prep at the time that I showed to some people. And they're like, oh, this is pretty interesting. But not much happened with it. Mm -hmm. And then what I had is I was doing a small couple's Bible study with some friends of ours. Alan and Connie Klinky were the ones who ran it. She's a double domer and he's a single domer. They met in MBA at Notre Dame. Okay. And so, and then I worked with Connie at Conoco before she left when they started having their kids and she decided to stay home and be a full-time mom. And so Alan and Connie, and especially Connie, started this couple's Bible study that they invited me to, and actually before I was a couple, before I met Shelly. <laughs> okay. But they're just like, Steve, we want you to come to this. You know, you study all this stuff on the Catholic face, so come be it. And so then once Shelly... And I got together, and then we got married. She became part of this couple's program. And as we're there, one of the guys at this program was a man named Robert Vio. And Robert Vio was a Notre Dame MBA. And he and his wife, Laura Lee, got engaged at Notre Dame right there at the Grotto. Hmm. And while we're there, Robert lost his job, or he lost everything, when Enron crashed and brought Arthur Anderson with it. Okay. And Robert was a partner at Arthur Anderson. And he was totally innocent bystander. He was the consulting side of the business, not the audit side of the business. But overnight, he lost everything. Mm. And while he was trying to figure out, okay, what does God want me to do with my life? He started attending a Protestant men's Bible study here in Houston called Men's Life. And it was at one of our large Protestant churches. And they had 500 men show up every Wednesday morning at this program. Mm. And when they did, they did a survey, they found out one third of those men were Catholic. And Robert came to me and said, you know, Steve, we need to do something like this in the Catholic Church. Yeah. Because see, their program is wonderful as far as it goes. But if you're a Catholic, you're never going to hear in their program anything about the sacraments. You're never going to hear anything about the church or the magisterium. You're never going to hear anything about Our Lady or the Saints. And so it's great for as far as it goes. But if you're a Catholic, there's all these other things that make our faith the rich Catholic faith that it is. And I told Robert, no, nope, God wants me to do something on marriage and family life. Okay. And Robert was smarter than I was. He said, well, you know, Steve, a man is half a marriage. Mm -hmm. I said, that's pretty good math. <laughs> and so I still didn't want to do it. And then my spiritual director told me, you know, I want you to go do something in your parish. So I told Robert, I said, let's go talk to Father John, who was a pastor at St. Cecilia's at the time. And we'll mention Father John that we want to start this men's program. If he says yes, we'll assume it's the will of God. And Father John's literal words was, sure, you can do it. Nobody else wants to. <laughs> and we said, how come? He said, nobody will show up. Okay. 
We said, what? He said, there, there won't be anybody to show up. Men aren't interested in this. And especially because we told him we we're going to do it at 6 o'clock in the morning before, before work started. Yeah. And so we asked every person on staff, and every person on staff said not one man will show up. And we got to the last one, which was our parochial vicar father, too, at the time. And I said, nobody. Everybody said nobody. And he said, okay, I'll, I'll tell you what, 10 guys will show up. I said, I got eight guys on my core team. And he said, okay, 20 guys will show up. The first week we had 124 men show up. Hmm. And by the end of that year, we'd had 225 men show up, and then we quit giving out binders. Mm-hmm. So men are thirsty for this. And now that program, that man is used in, I think it's 46 states and eight countries and over 100,000 men have gone through it. Hmm. And it's an intensive program. It's, you know, 26 weeks. Uh, out of the year, 30 minutes of content followed by 30 minutes of small group discussion. Prior to that, t- men typically meet for, you know, coffee and, you know, a bagel or something like that. And the program really flows from, again, that seed planted at Notre Dame, this intersection of faith and reason. Mm-hmm. And so the program certainly has our Catholic faith and our Catholic faith in the way we think about it, meaning it's got scripture, tradition, and magisterium. So it's all of those three-legged stool there. But in addition to that, we marry to it all sorts of neurology and sociology and science, and it all just fits together. Mm-hmm. You know, we're the, the one religion that's formally defined, John Paul and Fides et Ratio, that faith and reason are two wings upon which the human spirit rises to contemplation of God. We can be fully thinking men and women. Mm-hmm. We can use our mind to its fullest extent, both in our faith, but then also when it comes to our world and our natural world and how we do things and understand things. And if we do it correctly, we should be able to find that they fit together because the same God gave us both. That's what the men have responded to. That it's a thinking man's program that we don't ask you to to either A, be a fundamentalist and turn off everything we know about the world and all that we've learned about the world. Mm -hmm. Likewise, we don't ask you to accept what we've learned in the world and then just kind of nod, wink, wink about our faith, we ask you to truly embrace our faith and embrace it deeply. And then we say that we can bring those two together. Uh, You know, a faith advisor to the Gallup poll did a study of that man as you and said it was the most life-transforming program he'd ever studied. Hmm. And that within one year, the men as a group, not any one man, but the group that he studied went from the bottom 10 percentile in the commitment to the faith to the top 5 percentile by the end of that year. Hmm. That's pretty good for a program where no one was going to show up. <laughs> Nobody's going to show up. And so men, men do want it. Yeah. And what, the, what we've got to do is embrace, we've got to challenge men. We have to embrace where we are in our culture today, challenge them, and then they respond. We're now doing this, we're in the middle right now of our largest initiative, and that is for uh, young people. Mm-hmm. So if you look at young people today and the life that they live and, and the challenges they face, you know, it's tough. Mm-hmm. And even in, quote, good Catholic families, I can't tell you how many of my friends, right, growing up at St. Cecilia's have done everything, quote, right. They've been at church. They've had their kids go to Catholic schools. They've been involved in, you know, youth ministry and all of those things. And then lo and behold, now they're like, you know, my kids aren't practicing the faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, my kids aren't having my grandkids baptized. And I see a lot of true angst in parents. Sure that their children are growing up and this culture is truly very challenging. And I find that this Catholic vision of integrating faith and reason together is the answer they're looking for. Hmm. 
we're putting together a program right now called What is Love? And we took the name What is Love from this simple reality that, first of all, sociologists now say that up to one-third of people in their 20s will never marry. Mm-hmm. That there's that shift away from marriage and family life. And in fact, when they do surveys of people in their 20s, and they ask them, what do you want out of life? Mention all the things you'd expect. I want a great job. I want to travel the world. I want to work out and stay fit. I want to make boatloads of money. The last two things on their list are to get married and have children. Mm -hmm. In fact, only 17% of people in their 20s list getting married as a top three goal. Only 13% list having children as a top three goal. Mm -hmm. And the only thing lower, which the survey didn't ask about, is faith. Only 12.8% of non-married Catholics, 18 to 35, attend Mass on a weekly basis. Mm -hmm. So faith and family isn't on the radar screen for the vast majority of them. Nonetheless, one of the most frequently Googled questions is I simply go out to the Internet and Google what is love. Hmm. We were praying in Novena one time, the whole ministry, and the inspiration that came to that Novena was you need to answer that question. The Catholic Church, you know, First John, God is love, has been contemplating this mystery for 2,000 years. We have an answer. Mm -hmm. And we use the Catholic nuptial mass to give seven answers to that question. And when we give seven answers, we integrate faith and reason together in a way that people are just truly blown away by. And then now what's really amazing is we tie to this the most incredible stories And now the best production value we've ever done. Mm -hmm. We got these incredible stories. We got this incredible science. We got great theology. And then our production value, you know, we got somehow, thanks be to God, permission from, you know, the government in France, because most people don't know, but the government actually owns the buildings in France, Mm -hmm. which is why the government's rebuilding Notre Dame in Paris as opposed to the Catholic Church rebuilding it. Right. We got permission from them to make a three-dimensional model of Saint-Denis, which is a basilica cathedral on the outskirts of Paris. It's the first Gothic uh, structure in the world. Hmm. And Abbot Chuguer, back in 10-something or other, built this, and it was the Royal Abbey, so it was a counterpart of Westminster Abbey in London. Saint-Denis was the Royal Abbey of of France. Had all the money he wanted. He built this structure, and you can walk into it now, eight, nine hundred years later, and you're like, Wow, this was the pro prototype. This is the first one. Yeah, and you're blown away. Well, we, and the amazing thing is, we've got all of his original writings, and his original writings are that his explicit goal was to visibly represent what the Catholic theology is, and that every mass is the wedding feast of the Lamb, hmm. taken from the Book of Revelation. Sure. So we have we know that's what his explicit desire was. We then get to, uh, they let us make a three-dimensional model. When we did it, when we were done, they said, you asked permission, we gave it to you. You did not do one thing that you hadn't said you were going to do, but we had no clue. We'll never let anybody do this again. (laughs) We're flying drones around on the inside of that thing, right? (laughs) And we're piecing this whole thing back together. We actually bring San Denis to life for the wedding feast of the Lamb. Yeah. Uh, and we and through animation now, and we sit uh, a young couple who their real wedding happened elsewhere, but through all the wonders of technology today and animations, we can take that couple and show their wedding as if it were happened as part of the wedding feast of the lamb. Hmm. 
was phenomenal. Wow. Uh, and as we've test marketed this with, we've gone through five different focus groups now. The most common thing we hear is, why have I never seen or heard this? Yeah. And it's just like all of a sudden it's like, this is now different. I understand our faith differently. I understand everything differently. Yeah, that's amazing to hear. And if it's anything near the success that that man is you has been, I'm a participant at my own parish in that man is you and really been really inspired by the content there. Uh, I'm sure it's going to be a real gift to the church and to the culture for that matter. Uh, one final question for you, because we always do like to ask each of our guests, uh, because the name of the podcast, Everyday Holiness, how have you come to understand your own call to holiness throughout your life, and who have been some of the most important examples of holiness to you? You know, here's the simple answer that I've come to understand, and we try and even give other people to the ministry, and that is truly in my life as a husband and father, and Shelley as a wife and mother, God has given me everything I need that we need to become great saints and not little saints. And I, and I'll become a great saint as a husband and father, not mm-hmm. by parodies who stay, not by going to be a missionary somewhere, but literally if today my job is to go home and help my daughter with her homework and find out how gymnastics goes tonight when she's getting ready for a meet, that is my job. And mm-hmm. there's holiness in that. And the two greatest saints in heaven are lady who is a wife and mother, and St. Joseph, who is a husband and foster father. Mm. It, and that's not by accident. We, John Paul's helped us understand now that it wasn't like, okay, well, God had to become incarnate and he had to hang out somewhere for 30 years until he you know, started his public ministry. And so by accident, Mary and St. Joseph just kind of had to hang with him a little bit. Mm-hmm. No, he's God. If he wanted to, he could make his own mills by snapping his finger, right? Mm-hmm. It's the opposite. The home was made in light of the fact that Jesus Christ would spend 30 out of 33 years of his life in the home. Hmm. The church started in the home. The home is the place where happiness happens and holiness happens. It's where we encounter God so we can be happy, healthy, and holy. So truly, and within that, there's peace. My job is to do my best to get me and my family to heaven. Mm -hmm. And if I work on that every day, and there's some great sociology. Matter of fact, a Notre Dame alum who's at Harvard, who's written a book that he's now got the most amazing research that the Catholic vision of marriage literally founded the West as we know it. Hmm. And he's got the hard data behind it. It's amazing. Hmm. Anyway, for another time. Yeah. Any people that you you mentioned John Paul II, Blessed Stanley Rother, any other saints or others who have been real examples to you? You know, lots of saints. My favorite saints are Don Bosco and St. Therese, and they're patrons for our ministry along with John Paul II. But I'd say people got, you know, God has placed so many people in my life. Mike Blackburn was my best friend, devout Protestant, all through high school and college, and God used him to keep me from getting in trouble. You know, Robert Vio, unfortunately, he died from an undiagnosed embolism young, hmm. but God put him in my life to get that man as you and Paradise to stay up and running. And so, you know, God has surrounded me with these incredible people. And number one is my wife. Mm-hmm. None of this would be what it is without Shelley. And then I've got the two best daughters in the world, hmm. uh, Anne-Marie and Mary Rose. Truly, God comes to us through other people. 
And when we start seeing other people as the hidden face of God, we find his hidden face in them. It's amazing how that transforms the relationship, even sometimes when there may not be the easiest moment in time. And I, I will just give one other thing. Mm-hmm. I, and so many people have said this is one of the most helpful things I've ever heard. And years ago, I was attending Mass at Holy Rosary, Dominican Parish here in town. Father Victor Brown was preaching the Mass. And he was giving a talk about Edith Stein. Mm-hmm. Um, in his homily, he was mentioned about Edith Stein. And in that, he mentioned that Edith Stein, when she was younger, and of course, Edith Stein was a Jewish convert who back prior to World War II, became one of the first women to get a doctorate in philosophy there in Germany. Very unusual for a woman to get a doctorate. Uh, and when she did it, she get, was under one of the you know, greatest philosophers uh, there in Germany, and she was known to be brilliant. Nonetheless, she had a very sharp tongue, and she had this keen mind, and so in her youth, she was known for the fact that she would be in a meeting and she would hand you your head. Mm-hmm that as soon as you said something, she would get two or three steps in front of you, and then she'd wait for you, and when you arrived, she'd chop your head off because <laughs> she'd already seen all the fallacies in your logic. Yeah. When it came time for her to get tenure, it was denied. And she went to go cry on the shoulder of her mentor there, expecting him to be irate at the fact that she was denied tenure, and instead his statement to her was, you know, even though it's hard, I think this may be best for you. Hmm. And she couldn't believe it. And he said, you know, here you've alienated so many people. Perhaps it's good to get a fresh start. And she said she took that moment to say, God's given me this incredibly keen intellect, and I've misused it. What God wants me to do is instead of use this to destroy people, he wants me to use it to protect people. Hmm. And she vowed to herself from that moment forward I will only use this that if I see somebody's going into an area that's going to get them in trouble or it's going to be an embarrassment or any of those things, I will deflect the conversation or I will change it. I will do something to protect this person from some kind of public humiliation. When I heard that, I was struck by that. And somehow or another, God gave this little twist. And so that when Shelly and I were in that courtship, and I don't remember if it was right before we got married or engaged or right after. I think it was right before we got engaged. I said, you know, honey, spouses are called to live in such intimate union that they're naked and unashamed. Truly, that most relates to our emotional, spiritual lives together. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know that in the Garden of Eden, we think that that related to the fact that they didn't have clothes on and all that. Mm -hmm. But that was just a representation that Adam and Eve lived in such emotional, spiritual union, that there's nothing between them at all. Spouses get to see the most vulnerable part of each other. In other words, you're going to know all my warts and bumps and bruises and all the things that are hardest for me, and I'm going to know that about you. Like Edith Stein, I promise you, I will only use that to protect you. Hmm. That my job as your husband is to protect you so well that you're willing to be vulnerable with me in the most difficult areas so that I can help you. Within that context, what I promise you is I will never use that against you. And therefore, I will never say, I never intentionally say anything that will hurt you. Hmm. Undoubtedly, at times I will say something, but I can tell you now, I will never intentionally hurt you. So therefore, you can be vulnerable and I'll never use it against you. Hmm. And she made me the same promise. 
And when we've done marriage prep for couples, we've all told them the same thing. If you can truly make that promise to each other, it changes every potential future disagreement. And there have been times where one of us has started a conversation with, honey, I know that you would never intentionally hurt me, <laughs> but, but it's amazing if you start that conversation with that, it does change it immediately because it's like, oh, really? I had no idea. No, I didn't mean that. Yeah. And then you can truly believe, okay, Shelly told me she would never intentionally hurt me. I'm going to take her to work. And of course, she lives that every day. Mm-hmm. And I do my best to live that every day. So if you can promise your spouse you will never intentionally hurt them, it's amazing what that will do for your marriage. Yeah, I think that would make such a difference for so many, and and many will be inspired by this story and uh, those who are married and uh, maybe even grew up in, like yourself, in families that you know it wasn't as ideal, but you've given us something to aspire to. So I just want to thank you, Steve, for your time, taking the time to talk with us on the podcast and everything you're doing through you and your team through Paradisa's Day to evangelize the church and and really in a modern context respond to the challenges of our time. So thanks for thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me and best of luck there at Notre Dame and thank you for all you're doing. Absolutely. Well, that concludes this episode of Everyday Holiness, a Faith Indie podcast. Of course, we welcome you to share this and other episodes with family and friends who you think might be inspired by this, and also to subscribe both to our Faith Indie Daily Gospel Reflection and to the podcast here so we can continue to share stories of meaning with you. Until next time, you'll be in our prayers. Mm-hmm.